No, I didn't actually attempt. Um, I haven't gotten to that point, I guess. The courage, the strength that it takes to be open and honest about this. Instead of just, you know, blaming myself that he's not here anymore. Uh, I was prepared to shoot myself. Um, and I called my family to sort of say goodbye. To be honest, I was scared reaching out for help because I was like, this could totally ruin my career. Somebody to have a more proactive approach and that he was coming to me to be that person. They found him and he committed suicide. I just started screaming. I just felt responsible. What's going on, everybody? I am Tim Lawson, founder and host of the One Too Many Veteran Suicide Project and podcast. Today is Monday, so I have another powerful story to share with you. Today, Navy veteran Timothy Jones joins me to talk to us about a friend of his who was harassed and hazed for being gay in a time where uh, the military was much more sensitive service members that were perceived to be gay and then he's also going to talk to us about a few of his own struggles that he's had personally with suicidal behavior and the importance of being able to heal and move forward and apply what he's learned to the people around him and be a beacon of hope uh, to those that are going through the same struggles. So Tim's stories are powerful and enlightening and they bring a lot of weight so um, understandably it's difficult to to listen to um, stories of this nature but uh, for those of you that are listening week to week I really appreciate it this is a part of the change that we're going to have to remove stigma from the the conversations of suicide so I'll have a few notes after Tim's stories for now Navy veteran Timothy Jones the story for where I came into the story was um, I was about six months at my new duty station in Japan. And um, my best friend at the time, uh, his friend, uh, was he was friends with this one guy that was going through issues. He was getting, uh, um, he was getting uh, kicked out uh, for don't ask, under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And what I began to see was a pattern. He started becoming, uh, started getting harassed, um, uh, pretty much blacklisted uh, because he was uh, perceived as gay. From there, it was kind of a, a slope, a decline in just his his behavior, his his mental state, uh, and, and it was really slow. But at the time, what I could see was. You know, when I first met him, he was a, a guy who was full of life that was, uh, in many, in, in retrospect, was, to me, I felt was stronger than, than myself. And um, just in, in how he presented himself and his knowledge. And I began to just see daily what being harassed and hazed began to do to him. He just began to deteriorate, deteriorate uh, mentally. He began to withdraw from a person who started, whom I, when I first met him, was full of life and and had this zest, he just be, started to become um, this entirely different person. He just became a shell of who he was. Um, and to see him not be able to, to articulate his 
his own pain. He just became, he withdrew into himself and, and he just wasn't there anymore. How, how was he being hazed? He, it started off with simple stuff. He lived on the, where he, when he was going through this, they put him on the third floor, which was the middle of basically his barracks. And obviously there's no elevator, so he would go up and down, and he they would call him names, uh, they'd call him fag, they they would say things under their breath, they they wouldn't really they they withdrew from him completely except for those that really knew who he was and didn't care about what he was going through. He did nothing wrong except he was gay, and. Everyone, aside from maybe seven people, the entire base just did not want anything to do with him. So there was one time where um, he basically, what was that incident? I'd signed in to go visit him and visit my friends, and and I put his name down uh, accidentally, and he got in such trouble just because he wasn't supposed to have visitors and when I kind of explained it was my oversight that I wasn't going to visit him I was actually visiting my other friend I just put the wrong name down um, they just over paperwork item he got in trouble and pretty much got put like placed on like restriction um, little things they just started little things like that to mess with his psyche and those little things became big things okay um and so what, um, I mean, what ultimately, like, what was, obviously he, you know, he took his own life, but how did you find out what was the circumstance, stuff like that? We, we had noticed right in the last week of his life, he had really, really started to withdraw. And we were getting concerned because this was not the person, it was so un unlike his character. And he began to withdraw from us. And so... It was a Saturday Saturday night. Generally, what happens is that weekend we'd all go out and and we'd go to uh, to Hiroshima to celebrate. But we were like, you know what? Why don't we do something special for him to lift his spirits? But uh, he insisted. He was like, listen, you guys go on to Hiroshima and we'll do a barbecue uh, on Sunday. So all of us went out together to just get out of, get off of base and. It was one of those times where you just know, you just could feel something's not right. We needed to not do that, but we kind of were young and, and young and impressionable. We got, we went off base and we had, we went out on, on the town and that day we came in, we came back and we were all supposed to get together at, um, at around 11 a.m. Um, and, some of us slept in, but it was around that time that we just noticed something was wrong. My friend, uh, my best friend, was uh, had shared a room with him. They were adjoining, and apparently he wasn't answering the door, and his door was locked. And he didn't go in to check in. Uh, he didn't check in when he was supposed to, uh, but no one really paid it any attention, any mind. Right. 11 o'clock rolls on. Three o'clock comes, and there and we notice that there's a big problem. There's a huge problem because he's not answering. Um, I get a phone call, and I wake up and I said, you know, let's 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 go figure this out. Eric ends up uh, kind of uh, 
going into his room and breaking into his room, and that's when he discovered that he had hung himself. Um, and uh, it was uh, that moment uh, kind of changed. Really, I, I say it changed my trajectory. My trajectory. Uh, when uh, as I was going to the barracks to kind of check on him, I just there's another shipmate. She just ran and she's like, "Listen, Torres, Torres just hung himself," and uh, and she was shaken. And, and immediately I ran uh, to the barracks. Uh, I ran up there and uh, I got there right as they were kind of uh, taking him down. And. Uh, where where was the leadership during this this hazing? Were they aware of it and just being passive? Were they involved? The leadership was aware, but they were being very passive. They were allowing it to happen. So, what was their response after the incident? <clears throat> they they did a memorial, and their their response was to to have a little more uh, of training, sensitivity training. Um, after the after the incident, I had a sergeant. Uh, I mean, pretty much was saying, you know, it's a. It was, he was happy he was dead, and he was going to hell because he was gay. And not only was he gay, that he since he committed suicide, he was certainly guaranteed a ticket to hell. And I, uh, I lost it. Wow. And this was maybe thirty minutes after I'd gotten back to barracks. After it kind of the word had got out, we lost someone. So it wasn't even an hour after. Uh, Word got out that he had he'd taken his life. That people were just happy. And uh, wow, that's a toxic environment to be in. It it was extremely toxic. It was. Uh, I started grabbing counseling because I, I I went to a depressive depressive state. I had never seen a dead body until that moment. Yeah. And it was uh, someone I, I was very close to that I I, I loved and. Um, and then I was kind of told to kind of suck it up, you know. People die all the time, and and to not show any emotion, uh, because I would I would have been targeted after that. Um, so. you know, if you, whatever you're, you know, if you're comfortable talking about it, it, you know, you like I said, you mentioned in the in the message you sent me that you also almost became a number. It was did your personal struggles did that stem from this incident at all? It, it stemmed from that incident. Um, I, I was assaulted actually on, on the base before he take he had taken his life, and uh, so when I reported what had happened to me, uh, I was I was I started getting a little I was starting getting a little pushback from the command. They didn't believe me when I first said that uh, someone had came in and assaulted me. Uh, until four other Marines uh, reported the incident. And it wasn't until the Marines reported it that they came back to me and said, hey, we remember this incident. Would you like to go on record? So uh, that was it. for me, that was incident number one. And when, when, my friend, when Torres took his life, that was incident number two. So for me, that, that started my cycle of, uh, of just... You said you, you said you reached out for some counseling and some therapy. Did you ever communicate 
to your counselor, your therapist that um, that you were struggling with this sort of behavior? Um, I did, and I was told uh, you need to be a you need to be a sailor. You need to be more. You need to be more of a man, and and suck it up. <laughs> that that was what I was told. You need to suck it up, or you're going to get kicked out. Did he ever, from either that you're aware of, or did anybody like admit that? Did he ever express any thoughts of suicide? He never did, and that that was the shocking point to us. He didn't leave a note. He he never. In hindsight, you can look back and say there were obvious obvious signs, but in the moment, he had never expressed thoughts of harming himself. He'd never, you never saw what was happening with him. He was almost like uh, a shell. Like he, when he left that room, he was a completely different guy. But when he was with us, you know, and, and looking back on it, he made references of that he just can't deal with it. He can't take this anymore. Right. Uh, he didn't want to go home to his. He felt like going home, uh, getting kicked out, um, just for being who he was. Uh, he felt it like he was a failure, and I remember, and, and in hindsight, him saying those words were just a precursor to what was happening. Um, Did so before? So you know, think three to six months before this incident. Did, were, did you guys? You, know, you mentioned like sensitivity training. What? But did you ever? Did you ever? Were you given specific suicide prevention classes? No. Did any of that change after this incident within your unit? There were classes afterwards. Uh, not, and actually, it wasn't even within my unit because he was, uh, I was H and H S, and he was in a another squadron. All right, but wasn't so, like the command or the base. Not within the command. Within that, when that within that particular squadron, there were okay. training, but it not wasn't command wide. Okay, I see. And do you feel like? It was in response to what happened. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the during that time frame, you're talking like '99. Right. So what really, it was a completely different military. Torres um, was actually the precursor. Everyone remembers Barry Winchell in at Fort Campbell in yeah. the army. Torres was before that. Okay. And. Right, right before that whole incident happened, and and we were, and, and the buzz within us were saying, "Listen, um, people are taking their lives just because they're afraid to deal, afraid of being who they are, and afraid of the consequences." I mean, this guy, just for being who he was, was being hounded and harassed, and we were saying, uh, "To me, I, I say he took his life, but he was pretty much to me. I think he was a shell of who he was. He was already dead before he took his life." Right. And the military at that time didn't care. And then, and then Barry Winchell happened, and then they realized, okay, now people now we're killing each other for a perception. Yeah. How how long were you in the were, were you in the military after this happened? How much longer were you active duty? Uh, another year. I only did two years and, and a few other few extra months. Okay. Uh, after that. Okay. Um, I mean, you know, you're you're involved with you know obviously you know student veteran organizations. 
Um, and, you know, you see, at least secondhand, what's occurring right now um, in the military and in the post-military veteran community. Do you feel, even though we're more aware of it, and even though the the military act, you know, presents itself as if they're they try to put they try to get off the perception that they are handling it much better than they did ten years ago. But do you feel like that's actually the case? Do you think that even though we're talking more about it, even though we're more aware of it, do you feel like there's any higher level of effectiveness when it comes to? helping military members feel comfortable with being able to reach out for help and then being able to provide them that help? From, and, and honest, I have to be honest, I think there, there has been a lot of strides because from when I was in, there was nothing. Right. And there was absolutely, there was not even a discussion made. And, the, and I was a lifer. The only reason why I'm still not serving today was because I was told to stay another three years in Japan and I and I couldn't do it I had already been assaulted uh, Torres took his life the whole Barry Winchell thing had happened and I and I started becoming Hayes and I knew for me personally my life was on the line if I had done another three years I was so scared that I would have been another number that I had to go to to I had to get to uh, stateside and now that I've seen the progression, and I've only just now recently been able to even talk about this on face value. I, I couldn't even tell people the details of what happened to me in 99 and what I lived through until two year, a little over two years ago. So, And what's that, pro- what's that process? I'm, I don't mean to interrupt, but what, what, uh, so what's that process been like for you? What, what changed? What happened... Um, either externally or internally that made you feel comfortable or at least motivated uh, to, to to be more open about what happened to you? Uh, when I became homeless and I didn't know that I had nowhere to go, and when I entered that v, the VOA program, and it was a little external circumstances. The the VOA program, although the VA had you know helped sponsor partial part, portions of it. That helped me to open up. So when I went to my VA, my therapist at the VA, um, I felt I had to change because I was my life was being crippled by this, uh, and I could finally see what I was doing to myself um, based on the last t- twelve years. I, I it finally opened my eyes that the only person that I'm hurting right now is myself, and that. I knew I had to, to, to address my issues. I was finally ready to just address it. And when I went into the VA, I finally was paired with a therapist that kind of understood and, and kind of walked me through. I didn't, we didn't even tackle, we didn't, we weren't even ready to tackle that issue yet. We walked in, you know, it was a, a process. Yeah. Um, and they kind of held my hand through it and, and, and really um, allowed me an outlet to kind of get out there. And, and I was still scared. I was still scared to really go there because I didn't know what would happen if I went there. Yeah. And place myself in that space. And When was the last time you experienced suicidal behavior? I want to say several years ago, uh, 2009, 2010. That was when I 
I, I literally I, I was uh, on drugs and all that nature, and I had to get clean. And I came home to my family, um, and I was staying with my brother. And every day for three months, I wanted to kill myself. I did not want to to deal with just the issues that I just knew were plaguing me. And I I don't know. What stopped me? I didn't want to. I was being selfish. Some, something just told me to, that I wanted to, to end it then. That was the last time that I said I want to die. And and and, and I'm asking this as someone who has who's you know I've I've been through my own suicidal behavior before. What you know? What kept you? Like what was it? You just you didn't have. <laughs> Uh, a, a reasonable means to to go through with it, and I, I I'll admit that there's been times where the, the thing that saved my life is the fact that there were there wasn't a firearm around. Um, <laughs> you know, like what you know for that for that every day you want to take you know want to want to die sort of mentality. Like what kept you from going through with that sort of tragedy? To be honest, it was uh, to, to be perfectly honest, I felt I was a, I was a coward. We criticize people for calling, you know, suicides a coward way out, but isn't it sort of bittersweet to know to think that that's possibly keeping people from doing it? And, it I'm, not, is. and I'm not excusing their behavior. I'm just saying, like, is it? It's sort of hard to sort of wrap your head around a little bit, you know, like to think, you know, because I, um, I was talking to someone yesterday, and day like two days after. Um, this warrior's friend died, uh, another soldier. Um, they had like a, a, com- a company run and the company commander started talking about how that young soldier was just a coward and weak and it was a coward's way out and blah, blah, blah. And I would, I mean, I would be so furious to hear one of my leaders say this about one of his own, um, one of his own soldiers, you know. Um, but then to hear someone else say like, I didn't, I couldn't go through with it because I felt like a coward. Like it's so, there's dissonance there. Like, I don't feel like that. <laughs> like, I can't, like, I'm, I'm glad, obviously. I'm obviously, I'm glad that there was something that was, res- that, 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 um, provided some sort of resistance for you. But it's, it's really amazing to think that that form of resistance is something that I criticize other people for pointing out. It's, 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 it's interesting. It's a good criticism, but it, it was one of those things that I couldn't, every time that I had the knife on my wrist and, and I, I was just like, okay. This scares me because this this I, I'm a, I, if I take this way out, my pain is done. But, and then I, I kind of go back to Torres a little bit. I started thinking what I thought when he took his life. I never and I don't use that. I don't think he was a coward. I think he had zero life left to live. Yeah. For me, I felt I don't think I've lived. I don't think I've reached any of the potential that I haven't reached where I want to be. And also that once I do this, my brother's going to come home (laughs) and he's going to see his little brother. And when he sees me, I was afraid of what my brother would think of me. And, and then that kind of hit me in that moment that I didn't give, I didn't care about the rest of the world at, in that moment. I honestly, I didn't care about my mom, what my mama thought. I cared about what my big brother would think. Yeah. Because he's been, he was like the one that took me in. And, uh, 
And then I said, man, I don't want to be labeled as a coward. <laughs> and that's that kind of is what saved me. That's that's really interesting, and I'm I'm glad. <laughs> I'm, glad <laughs> I'm I'm glad that that was there for you. So how so now like do you do you take any sort of mentorship roles now with talking with other people that have experienced a similar assault that you did i'm just finally getting to the point where i'm ready to share my story and share what happened to help others i just had a um you know I, last semester i did have a hard time adjusting to uwf but it was the first time that although i had depression depressive symptoms I didn't want to die. I was like, okay, I, I should just handle it. Yeah. Um, I had about uh, maybe about a year ago, I had a young guy that I'd known that took his life, and uh, and that kind of opened my eyes that I have. If I would have shared what had happened to me and what I'd gone through, maybe he wouldn't. Be, he would still be here. And I finally realized that uh, I need to get out, and I need to. People need to hear that you can overcome and you can not take take that road. Uh, so I'm finally able to do that, and that's what I'm actually working on getting involved with uh, now. I like that. I like that. Um, I, I think that there's a lot of strength and empathy, um, and I think that's something that that's one of the things that we're not really taking advantage of when it comes to you know, any sort of PTSD, any sort of, you know, sexual trauma, any sort of assault. We're not utilizing the obvious empathy that's somewhere in the building. You know, someone can empathize with some, with what you've experienced. And there's strength there in being able to, you know, to empower each other. And, exactly. You know, and be able to realize what you're feeling is something that I have felt and if you're not, you know, if, if you're feeling this way and you're, you're considering something you don't want to do, you know, like suicide, if you're considering suicide, you obviously don't want to do that. The only other, only other thing you can do is try to go in the other direction, mm-hmm. you know, and being able to have someone point that out to you, um, I think is, is really important, you know, cause you know, as you know, as I know, as other military and, and civilians know that, um, you know, when you're starting to contemplate suicide, sometimes it feels like you're sort of just stuck in that area. You know, you're stuck, exactly. in that, you're stuck in that space and it's almost like this circling drain and you're just sort of wondering if sooner or later you'll just give up. Exactly. And, you know, it takes someone to sort of like pull, pull you away and be like, no, no, you can go the other way. It, that's an option. You know, it's, exactly. it's not easy, but there is a way, there is an option for you that doesn't end this way. And I think that I don't want to point the finger at the military too much because they, I mean, there's plenty of officers that are honestly trying to find a way to stop their, you know, their Marines yeah. and soldiers and, and shipment, you know, to, from, from killing each other or killing themselves. But, um, I think that they are still trying to find the catch all solution, mm-hmm. you know? Um, they think there's gonna, they, if they just make the right video or make the right class, sooner or later they'll fix yeah. it. And they need to realize that it's a, it's a, it's a personal thing that suicide briefings honestly probably need to, need to be 10 minutes and the other 20 yeah. minutes needs to be 
explaining who they can talk to, not just the chaplain, not just your NCO, not just your staff NCO, not just that person, but bring in civilians from the community that have been, that have, you know, offered to talk and stuff like that and, um, giving them an opportunity privately to be able to, you know, even spend three minutes talking to someone and realizing, holy shit, I can get away from this behavior if I want to. Exactly. Our school, uh, I just had this conversation a little bit uh, with a gentleman at my school, um, and he had said, you know, the suicide, um, suicide outreach services, SOS, we have that at UWF, reached out and wanted to partner with SVA and, and, and wanted to, you know, create a work of, hey, we have these added services. And 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 and, and, then, and the guy said something that stuck out to me. He said, "The name suicide. There's a stigmatism around that, and it's kind of a negative connotation. And and I don't know if we want to do that." And I just looked at him and I said, "Man, do you understand that I should be dead right now? That right. if I would have made a different choice, I wouldn't be talking to you right now." And I said, "If I felt this way, there's other individuals, and that is the problem." Suicide has this negative buzzword around it, and the reality of it is people are taking their life, and you've got to change the connotation, but if you don't get it out there and, and, and say, hey, you've had these thoughts, but guess what? There's these services. There are people that care about you, and I said, and I, thought, I kind of told him that. I said, I want, you want to be on the, uh, on the front end of this. You don't want to be on the back end because um, I've seen when people are on the back end. You know, I've seen it in the military. I saw it in Japan. People didn't want to do anything until it was too late. And I think that's where my anger stems from is I don't ever want to be able to say reach somebody when, when it's too late. And if there are resources, they need to know that there's a resource. They may not come to you while you're doing anything, but if they know that they can go somewhere and talk, um, that might be the seed that's planted that saves a life. And if we can save one life, then the services is worth it. Um, and I, I kind of agree with you. I think we what needs to happen is they need to know that there's resources. The civilian sector does care. I do believe that there's a, there are people in the military that care. And I always tell my people that had I been on the Navy base, had I been in the States, um, maybe what had happened in Japan wouldn't have happened. But where I was at was so remote and um, kind of contained that it was allowed to happen. I don't believe that th that is the, the, the culture there now. You don't have to, you know, that they don't have to take, you don't have to take your life because there's there's life and there's power and you're not alone. And I think that's what needs to, as long as that point is getting across, I think you're doing an amazing job of doing it. That's the point. Tim's story about his fellow shipmate who was, uh, who was hazed to the point of taking his own life is, uh, another example of how bullying and hazing, uh, while it's considered part of the culture in some ways in the military, how fatal it can truly be to, to those that, that can't handle it or when it's laid on far too much and in just the, the most malicious of ways. You know, the military, you know, at least when I was in from 2006 to 2011, um, was a little bit... Uh, they took a little. They took hazing more. They took it more seriously. Granted, the the traditions of hazing, like when you were promoted or when you got your blood stripe and when you got your crow, you know, 
the hazing that came along with that was sort of there was still a blind eye turn to that because of the tradition behind it but hazing in the form of hatred and bullying uh there was there was more intervention from you know the higher ups to uh you know to to stop that sort of behavior so hopefully that is still the case and hopefully there has been uh less cases like that like uh, the one that tim talks about um occurring then and um you know still occurring now you know and we heard from margie last week about how bullying you know drove her uh her daughter to uh to suicide and you know having these two stories back to back really uh, shows the point of the one too many project, the one comma two comma many, and that you know when you hear about a story by itself, you know it it seems like maybe it's unique, maybe it's an outlier, maybe it's just that particular case. But these are two stories that are actually pretty uh, pretty well separated in time, but are still v- very much the same and. You know, these are, you know, we've heard one now, we've heard two, and I promise you there are many more just like this. And it's important to uh, to take note of that and realize what the problem is, where it lies, and, and who really needs our help. I really appreciated that Tim was willing to open up about his, uh, about his personal struggles in, in, um, in, his, in his own life. And I think that uh, stuff like conversations like this can be therapeutic to people who are looking for outlets to be able to be more vocal about it. I know Tim is looking to share his experiences in different ways. Uh, him and I were going to collaborate on a, uh, on a panel, on a, on an event in Pensacola where he, uh, university of West Florida, where we were going to, um, discuss suicide and depression. And, um, unfortunately it's been postponed, but when, uh, when we finally get that event underway, I'll be sure to uh, share it with all the listeners so you can view or listen however possible. So Tracy Clemens, who has, um, I've played a few snippets of my conversation with her here on the show, she actually provided me a, a list of resources for people to consider um, both if for, for them themselves as a veteran or if they know people uh, they know military members who are uh, who are in need of help. So I'm going to share, you know, for the next few weeks, I'll be sharing some items off the list that she gave me. And you know, I I, I shared the the taps I shared the taps hotline um, as a as a resource because you know they can help with tragedy assistance when losing somebody. Um, and I definitely wanted, um, you know, we're when a suicide occurs, it's uh, it's not easy for us to to sort of sit around and um, and just sort of deal with it. We need to talk to people, and I wanted to make sure that that resource was available for people in that situation. But you know, I, I think it's even though uh, we could believe that everybody is aware of the hotlines and the lifelines and whatnot, maybe it's not the case. Maybe there's one person listening today that doesn't know that these resources exist. So I want to make sure, um, even though these are um, more traditional. I want to make sure that, that people know that these are readily available. So I mentioned the the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is one eight hundred two seven three talk. 
That's 8255. And if you press the number 1, um, you will get a confidential military crisis line. Um, so that's both the suicide prevention lifeline, but if you press 1, um, according to um, the sheet that I have in front of me, you will reach a military crisis line, which is confidential um, if you were to to be interested in that. I hope, again, that we all took something from Tim's story. I know that you know Tim and I talk on a regular basis, and it's great to sort of see us both uh, grow from our experiences and um, you know to pursue a change in society around the stigma of suicide. Uh, so I thank him again for coming on. Reflections on Wednesday, Q&A on Friday. If you go to O-N-E, the number two, manyproject.com, there's a contact page and there's also a tab on the right that allows you to record a question um, if you want to submit one uh, for Friday's show. Thank you for listening. I will see you next week.